I'm Amanda Littman. And I'm Faz Shakir. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we're talking to Tyler Kincaid. Tyler is a national reporter for NBC News who has been covering the fight over critical race theory, or CRT for short. There has been a lot of coverage in the media about the anti-CRT movement and critical race theory in general, but it's important to understand, while there is a substantive conversation to be had about equity and racial justice in America, for conservative operatives, the specifics of the fight and what critical race theory actually is doesn't matter. This is essentially Tea Party 2.0. Yeah, and they've got a lot of power going behind this effort to divide Americans over racial and social issues. And, uh, you know, Amanda, I was listening to Donald Trump. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've been tracking him. He was in Florida, in Sarasota on July 3rd. And he did, in fact, mention critical race theory being injected into the military and into the minds of our kids. I think Uh. it was within the first probably two minutes of him taking the microphone. And, you know, obviously this is a a play that they are making for political purposes, to be clear. Mm -hmm. I can't believe you torture yourself by listening to him. That's a choice that you are making. (laughs) (laughs) Owning it, yep. Before we get into our conversation with Tyler, Amanda, what's been on your mind this week? So I have been thinking about something that's actually incredibly relevant to our conversation with Tyler about critical race theory and the role that school boards play. Um, There's a story in NPR about how the chairman of Proud Boys, which is the newest iteration of bigoted hate groups, declared that their group was taking a step back from national politics and was refocusing on local elections. He really wanted their members to start running for local office. And this is a continuation of something we have seen with some of the worst parts of the Republican Party. I've been also tracking as QAnon has been encouraging its members to run for local office. Michael Flynn, the general, uh, who is quite famously sort of a spokesperson to and for QAnon folks, has been saying, run for school board, run for city council. We need to take over from the ground up. And I think it's an undercurrent of something that's really hard to track, but is really frightening and directly relates to the conversation that we have with Tyler about CRT in that absolutely batshit people (laughs) are running for and could win local office if there isn't some kind of concerted effort against them. You know, and this is what I do professionally. This is what Run for Something does. So part of that is my occupational interest in it. But I do think it's something that's really scary. And we talk a lot about the danger QAnon folks and the dangerous white supremacists in Congress and formerly in the White House. But there is a whole army, so to speak, of QAnon, of Proud Boys, of conspiracy theorists who are rising up through school boards and city councils that are making decisions that will directly hurt people. That is uh, a scary proposition for sure. You know, you see these kinds of factions take over a party, and that's what we have going on now. The conservative Mm -hmm. voters have not expunged it and instead are now letting it parasitically take over. And as you know, Amanda, in some of these local elections, small elections, you don't need a whole hell of a lot of people. You need a concerted, mobilized, energized few and... Sadly, that's where the Republican Party is. I think something that gets lost sometimes in the conversation about these school board elections, you know, 75% of school board races cost $1,000 or less, 85% cost $5,000 or less. They're not that expensive. They don't reach that many voters. You just need to have a candidate in many places on the ballot in order to win and then make decisions about things like curriculum. So it really does matter, even and especially in some of these deep red places, what kind of Republican is running and whether there's a Democratic alternative. So... That's keeping me up at night. Fast, it's giving you nightmares. 
Well, yeah, you may have noticed outside it's pretty damn hot, Amanda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the era of serious climate change is upon us. Leaving this warming planet to our kids and grandkids is a scarier proposition by the day. And if the question were to be asked, what are you doing about it? The answer is marginal right now. There's an infrastructure bill going through the Senate. However, it doesn't do a hell of a lot to reduce emissions in this country on the whole. And so th- that is something worth keeping an eye on. And I think at the end of the day, this infrastructure bill for all its merits will not be a climate bill, which means that the reconciliation bill, which would separately need to pass in July, needs to have a fulsome approach to climate. And if you're trying to look at some of the elements in a bill that are worth passing, Mm -hmm. uh, that might have some efforts to reduce emissions in our atmosphere, some of these efforts to pass tax credits that would be over a 10-year horizon so that companies and governments can make strategic decisions about moving in the direction of wind and solar and and, uh, biofuels, Mm -hmm. uh, that you would need to think about making some of these longer-term 10-year investments. In addition, you hear a lot of conversation around the national energy standard, which would ensure that the grid throughout the country is being funded in a way that gives us the permission to mobilize kind of renewable energy resources to change our electricity consumption. So those are two elements to keep your minds on. There's other obvious pieces, but if those pieces go into a reconciliation bill, then we're going to start to move in the right direction on climate. Does this do enough to start to make a dent in the heat waves and the ocean on fire? Is this enough? Uh, So first of all, I'm not going to pretend to be a climate expert on these matters, but it doesn't appear to be enough. We should should bring out some climate experts here in the very near future and discuss this because uh, we're going to have to think creatively, I think, beyond just like, hey, let's put some solar uh, panels Uh on our roofs and that'll be the way out of it. Um, Faz, we could do a whole hour, two hours, 10 hours on climate. But for now, let's leave it there and play our conversation with Tyler Kincaid. Tyler Kincaid, welcome to Battleground. Hey, thanks for having me. We wanted to talk to you about critical race theory, which you have been covering as part of the rights uprising. Can you set the scene here? What is going on with the fight over critical race theory? Yeah, so it's really playing out across the country at this point. It's not isolated to red or blue states. The only commonality we're really seeing is that it tends to be in smaller or suburban areas. So this is largely not an issue that's taking hold, let's say, in the middle of Chicago, in the middle of St. Louis City. But then like Mm -hmm. the St. Louis suburbs are facing parents who are really upset about schools supposedly implementing critical race theory. Either they're accusing the district of teaching critical race theory to kids or using critical race theory concepts. They're upset about some of the diversity training offered to teachers. It's really important to understand virtually every single school district that's been confronted about this says, we're not teaching critical race theory. We don't use critical race theory. There is no critical race theory here. And further, it's not just limited to issues about race because a lot of these places where there are conflicts, the parents are also upset about sex education or about accommodations for trans students. And so really at this point, when you hear critical race theory, it's not just about how we talk about race in schools. It's become a term that's used to describe all manner of things that some parents see as schools being too woke, too far left, and it's just kind of a catch-all term at this point. And just to make sure we're using the same language, what does critical race theory originally mean? 
What is the technical definition here? Right. So it's an academic theory developed in law schools, first in the 1970s by Derek Bell, but then honed in the 80s. Uh, one of the folks most frequently credited with doing that is Kimberly Crenshaw. It's a way of looking at how legal structures in this country are set up. And, and it's from the standpoint that it is by design to keep white people and people of privilege privileged and subjugating people of color, particularly black people. It's a way of instead saying that maybe it just happens that black people are disproportionately harmed by a certain policy. It's a way of looking at it and saying, no, that was by design. An example that I've picked up from scholars, because I'm not a scholar, <laughs> is the tipped minimum wage. Like you could have a debate about whether we should eliminate it or get rid of it because of a whole manner of issues and then talk about what do restaurants want, what do consumers want, who would be helped and who would be hurt. Or you can talk about how the whole existence of tipped minimum wage was a compromise as part of the New Deal to make sure that segregationist members of Congress wouldn't block the minimum wage in general. Right. But at heart, what's going on, Tyler, while we could have a substantive debate about the implications of systemic racism and critical race theory and be very thoughtful about this, it's a Republican political movement at the moment that feels like at its heart is trying to help Republicans win school boards, help Republicans win political races, in general by injecting some degree of discord and divisiveness, suggesting to the conservative base and to others that it is really the left that hates you. In one example of why the left hates you and you need to be concerned about this is they're trying to inject their quote-unquote values into our lives, imposing them. And one example of this happens to be this term that many of you probably don't know anything about, but we're so super savvy, smart conspiracy theorists, that is critical race theory. That is one of the ways the left truly hates you and is trying to impose its will on you. Am I wrong about any of that? It is Republicans who are taking advantage of it. That's mm -hmm. not something up for debate. If you look in Virginia in particular, Statewide candidates for office, the Republican nominees for governor, for lieutenant governor, are all on board with highlighting critical race theory as an issue that elect me and we'll stamp this out of our schools. It is something that Republican lawmakers have filed bills on. Republican governors have signed some of these into law to ban the discussion of either critical race theory or divisive concepts. A lot of that modeled off of an executive order issued by President Trump last fall. So while sometimes I hear from parents saying, hey, there are Democrats that support us. There are liberals who think that this is just going too far that are on our side. That might be true, but it's not Democrats. It's not national progressives who are putting money into this. Again, back to Virginia, because one of the epicenters of this is Loudoun County, a wealthy suburb outside of D.C. The Heritage Foundation helped organize a rally there a couple weeks ago with the local parents. One of the leaders of the local parent groups who started a PAC called Fight for Schools is a former spokesman for the Trump Department of Justice. 
In addition, Tyler, I mean, it's all over Fox News, probably well over a thousand mentions this year, I'm, I'm guessing. And Tucker Carlson's talking about it nonstop. And it reminds me of the old days of Glenn Beck and his Tea Party <laughs> uh, wave when he was really kind of the hero of it, which ultimately culminated in 2010 with Glenn Beck literally at the National Mall holding a rally to restore honor, which was the Tea Party wave come to D.C. And here you can imagine that we're at the early stages of what is kind of a movement that culminizes with some major prior to November 2022's fight for restoring honor and integrity to our schools across America, fight against the imposition of racial discourse in our education system. But it feels like the Tea Party movement of then and critical race theory of now, there are larger actors at play that are mobilizing this campaign, giving it strength. You mentioned heritage. Are there others that we should know on the conservative right who are mobilizing this thing? Well, you're right to bring up Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson, because back in 2009, 2010, Glenn Beck was a major figure. He had moved over from HLN to Fox News, had a daytime show that everything he said seemed to turn into something. That, like Just to recount that, right? Like there was an art form, Tyler, you remember yeah. it well, but it the would be, chalkboard. It would, there was a chalkboard, right? John Stewart famously parodied. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And, and it was like what I appreciate about it is it takes little bits of information and says, we know something you don't know injects it into the discourse and says, this thing is the thing to be worried about. It's a conspiracy form of thinking. So the ones that I can remember off the top of my head are like Acorn. Remember Acorn? Oh, Acorn. They're doing some amazingly crazy things out there. We've got to defeat this organization. Or George Soros and his cabal of networking. And in the same way, they'll just introduce terms now, critical race theory, where it's like, hey, here's a term. We'll track its popularity, insert it into discourse and watch people get galvanized around trying to get educated and learned about these kinds of things. Yeah. Glenn Beck was a major figure in helping to fuel that momentum on the right a decade ago. And Tucker Carlson occupies a similar space now where you can trace back a lot of this to things that happen on his show. For example, Trump issues his executive order a few days after seeing a conservative activist and fellow at some conservative think tanks, Christopher Rufo, going on Tucker Carlson and talking about critical race theory being used in training for federal contractors. Another example is last fall, a woman, Elena Fishbein, she started one of these groups that is very active in these school board disputes, No Left Turn in Education. It had fewer than 200 followers at the time. She goes on Tucker Carlson last fall. She told me that the next day, her Facebook page shot up from 200 followers to 30,000. Jesus. And she says, quote, he really launched our movement. He doesn't know it, but he did. And Tucker Carlson continuously covers these issues now, critical race theory and the disputes in schools. Loudoun County has been on Tucker Carlson. If nothing else, it's just their ratings. Like they're big and a lot of people watch them. And so they hear about this stuff and then it trickles out. And that's one of the ways that it fuels local parents then saying, I'm going to get involved in this at my district or I'm going to look for it. That's just kind of how it works. Like it has to come from somewhere because these are really local parents that are upset and speaking out of school boards. But I really doubt that many of them were sitting around during the pandemic brushing up on legal theories. Mm -hmm. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll dig into how the anti-CRT wave functions as a conservative electoral strategy. 
Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking with Tyler Kincaid of NBC News about how Republican strategists are using the term critical race theory as a catch-all concept that instills fear in their base. To me, this is like the savviest political strategy the Republican Party fell into over the last year in that it is removed from Trump, so it is not dependent on him as a person to stay on the ballot. It is deeply personal for parents, and especially, as you pointed out, suburban parents, and I think in particular suburban moms, a community of which Republicans have been losing over the last four years. I think it's a way to bring them back. And I think it ties in a whole bunch of different threads of anxiety that have been running through the Republican Party from cancel culture to wokeism, the 1619 Project, overreach of quote unquote social justice warriors. It is, I think, an incredibly savvy political move And I'm not sure enough Democrats are taking that seriously. Do you get a sense that there is a Democratic effort pushing back in any meaningful way here? No, not really. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know the extent to which Democrats are thinking about this, but I don't see publicly a lot happening. And the way that we've followed this, it is very similar to the Tea Party wave in that Back then, there were countless videos of these angry constituents at town halls. And sure, there was national groups fueling it or putting money into it or helping distribute information. And that may be happening here, but it doesn't change the fact that there are still local people that show up angry. And Mm -hmm. it's these local elected leaders who are trying to figure out what to do. And no, there's no like national response from the left. I'm also just noticing anecdotally, there's not a coherent response in terms of like, if all the schools say, we're not teaching critical race theory, do you defend critical race theory? Do you say it's fine? Do you say, no, they're not teaching it, so just stop? Or do you try to pick it apart? Like, I don't know that anyone really knows how to respond to this in a cohesive manner. Well, I mean, and I would... Uh, quibble just a bit with the notion. I mean, first of all, Fox News metastasizes all of this, right? Were there no Fox News, just as of the Tea Party wave, they were hosting the rallies, they would be at the rallies. <laughs> and you wouldn't have a nationwide movement on critical race theory were it not for Fox News mentioning it a thousand plus times, whatever, and Dark Carlson. But I'm not sure the thing I'm quibbling with is not the Democrats necessarily need to push back. I would be asking what similarly galvanizes interest at a local level, because if you think about it strategically from the Republican side to add to everything Amanda said, you know, what they're doing, you know, has a wonderful strategic arc, which is to say, if you fight this fight, you are demonstrating why the left hates you. You're demonstrating why government sucks. You look at your local school board. Hey, we have to fight them. Government is terrible. And then also look at your teacher unions. Oh my God, they're Mm -hmm. the worst. So it's kind of bringing together ideological arcs, but forming it in a political strategy in which, you know, people will get out. I mean, if if Fox News understands that if we amplify this Tea Party, people are going to get out and go do stuff on their own organically. Just as now, yeah, if we amplify critical race theory, people are going to get out on their own and do it. And we'll just demonstrate through a few case examples. Hey, here's what's going on in Loudoun. And you might want to do this out in the burbs of Nebraska or wherever. And so I'm asking the question, well, what's the democratic corollary? I mean, where's the passion and the excitement for doing something on the ground that doesn't have to necessarily be related to racial education or systemic racism and explaining it certainly could be. But what is the similar thing on the left? And that's what I struggle with. And man, that goes back to our conversation last week. It was like, hey, what excites you? What gets progressives going right now? Biden is kind of returning us to normalcy and there's not the similar kind of thing. Tyler, you seen anything out there? No, and one thing I noticed about this is like, this had its seeds 
last year in that there were a lot of educators who were fired up about the uprising around the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's murder. And a lot of them were talking about what can we do to teach history better? What can we do to improve our schools? People suddenly were talking earnestly about should we have cops in schools after years of turning schools into fortresses because that seemed to be the only thing plausible in the political climate regarding school shootings. And so it was a big flip last year in terms of just the way people were thinking about what do I want to do then when I come back in the fall. And that's where I first started seeing some parents getting upset about teachers and educators showing support for Black Lives Matter as a movement. And I did cover a couple cases where teachers were already facing blowback back then. They were fired up. It's just then evolved as the pandemic subsided, getting one side very animated, whereas I think the other side, I don't know, I'm not seeing a response like what you're looking for on the left, at least at the hyperlocal level. Well, and I think part of this problem of no response is that it's really hard to unite the Democratic Party, in particular around education. You know, Run for Something works with school board candidates. We worked with one of the school board candidates now facing a recall election in Loudoun County. We've worked with others in Broward who are dealing with like having introduced an equity resolution that is being seen as critical race theory. Um, I was just talking with one of our staffers today about a school board candidate in Dublin, Ohio, who's knocking doors and says that basically every conversation she has with voters is in some way, shape or form about critical race theory. And it's totally founded in fear and a misinformation and like, you know, very emotional, has totally disconnected from the reality of what it is or how it's being enacted in schools or isn't. But when Run for Something, in my experience, when I go out and try and talk to funders about the need to deeper engage in school board races, it is really hard to do so without an ideological lens, in particular on the issue of charter schools. So there is a really, you know, a tough place to land for Democrats who want to engage on these school board elections and school board issues because there isn't a non-ideological support system for them. I don't really know where you go from that. Yeah. I mean, I've lost funding because we said everyone should think about running for a school board. And a donor was like, ooh, I have opinions on charter schools. No more money for you. That sucks. <laughs> I think a lot of these, usually like a school board race is very hyper-specific about what's going on mm -hmm. locally. It's anger about why this particular school is too crowded. You know, this one hasn't gotten updated playground in a while. Um, there might be testing or there might be debates about fixing up a football stadium or resources like that. The only thing I can think of that animated parents on left of center like this was I noticed when I was doing a little bit of coverage in 2019 of the candidates going through Iowa, my home state. I'd noticed some local Democratic candidates for state talk a little bit about school lunch debt. Mm -hmm. And that was something that a lot of people were just morally outraged about and was just a symbol of a much larger issue around poverty, a larger issue around allocation of resources. But that conversation has subsided and you don't hear as much about it. But that's the only equivalent I can think of. And that was two years ago. Tyler, how much does uh, race play a role here when you're talking to quote-unquote regular people out there <laughs> fighting the critical race theory threat in America? How much do you get a sense that it's very obvious that race views, racism, racial animus is in part of their thinking, if not being explicitly vocalized? I've had some interesting conversations. I remember talking with one man who said to me multiple times, black lives don't matter, mm. and, but then elaborated that he 
was talking about the group. He, of course, supports racial equality, but also like he has been laid off in his life. He is a white man, but he doesn't have white privilege because of these other problems he's faced. And he's also, he said, married to an Asian woman. So how can he be racist? I've had a lot of parents quote MLK, judge not by color of your skin, but by the content of your character. I had spoke to one parent who said that her parents came to this country in the early 60s fleeing Cuba. And she talked about being picked on as a kid, as an immigrant, but that she moved on and she overcame. And so there is a fundamental disconnect in how they see the world. I mean, I think a commonality is that they would say they don't like the Black Lives Matter movement, or at least they would say they don't like the Black Lives Matter organization. But then they would say, they want a lot of race-neutral policies. I mean, back to the MLK quote, I've heard that repeated to me so often or seen them quote MLK so many times. <laughs> you, you don't often have them come out and say something overtly racist, but yeah, there is anxiety around people calling for a overhaul in how we've addressed these issues for why we're still at a point where there is so much where people of color are still held back and not achieving the same results that white people are in so many different categories. In this case, Tyler, what's old is new again, because remember, you know this well, that the Tea Party fight, half of it was always about, oh, we're not racist. We're just trying to raise concerns over the scope of our government and taxation and whatever it might be. And oh, by the way, here's a photo of Obama's a monkey in our poster or something like that. And <laughs> yeah. so they would, would fight the notions that this has nothing to do with race. In, in that case, Obama being president, it was so, you know, first African-American president in our history, it was more obvious. Here we got, here we got Biden. And now and it's interesting to watch the turns of this because there'll be a fight over Kiran Ahuja, who's the head of uh, Office of Personnel Management. What's the issue with her? Oh, well, she suggested something about critical race theory at some point in time. And so we're concerned about her and we'll fight her. Oh, here's uh, Kamala Harris's niece, Mina Harris. She said something about critical race. We're going to go after her. Oh, by the way, Kamala Harris too. Oh, why are we picking <laughs> on her? There's a reason for it. And you see it kind of manifest, not only the vice president, the people of color around him, but not necessarily targeted at Joe Biden directly, which is an interesting, you know, we all know why, but interesting uh, wrinkle between the Tea Party wave and now. I'm wondering, to what extent do you feel like has it come up that Joe Biden is bringing about a, a radical agenda and that we need to be concerned about him versus that not coming up, which obviously we know that Obama was very much at the forefront of everybody's minds back then. How much is Biden in their forefront of their minds now? To be honest, I haven't heard a lot about Biden. The only thing I'll hear is like the Biden administration is going to do blank, like write in to oppose mm. grants they want to give out on civics education or something like Isn't that. Isn't that something? Not yeah. hearing much about Biden, huh? Right. But <laughs> it, it, it's tapping into the same sort of anxieties around people who would get upset about cancel culture. We, we saw that a lot by some national politicians, and we still do. But I sense from a lot of parents I've talked to just an uneasiness about where our culture is heading. And they'll say that straight out, that they just don't like where the culture is heading. And that's why when we talk about like critical race theory, so many of these parents are not just limiting it to how do we talk about history? How do we talk about racial discrimination? It also encompasses accommodations for trans students. It also encompasses mm -hmm. sex education, sexuality. Some of the same groups, they will talk about how they're fighting against neo-racism. That's a new term some of them use. Uh, they also will circulate oh, videos. Sorry, Tyler, what is neo-racism? Um, 
I don't understand. I, I think <laughs> I, it, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, I, actually, I do want to make the point too. Like, equity is another thing that they're very against. You hear constantly to watch out for the term equity, and I've heard parents say, "quote We don't want equity; we want equality." And they view equity as a principle that everyone gets the same results, and that white people will be held down so that black people can get a better grade. Which is not true. I mean, equity is adding resources to make sure you end up at the same place, but it doesn't mean that everyone gets the same grade or that anyone loses a grade. Another version of equity is if someone has dyslexia, they might get extra tutoring to make sure that they can read the assignment, or they might get an audio book so that they can read it and keep up with the class. It doesn't mean that they're going to get an A on the test at the end. It just means that they get to take the test with all the same knowledge that everyone else did. But no one gets upset about equity when it comes to disability, and that's something that I think a lot of people in education would definitely take note of. Let's take a quick ad break, but we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Tyler Kincaid, investigative reporter for NBC News. And we're back with Tyler Kincaid. I want to zoom out for a moment because I think there's both the interesting political participation around the anti-critical race theory fight, but there's also the long history of the conservative movement politicizing education and using it to lay the foundation for conservative voters. Last week, we talked to Michelle Goldberg, who pointed out a quote from Ralph Reed, who was the leader of the Christian coalition, who noted, I would rather have a thousand school board members and no president than one president and no school board members. And just, you know, comparably, Steve Bannon on his podcast, the path to save the nation is very simple. It's going to go through the school boards. They have been using these positions of education elected officials to dictate curriculums for decades. There's a really interesting comparison the New York Times did between textbooks in Texas and California. In Texas, the State Board of Education, which Republicans have invested a lot of money into winning, has line item veto power over what's in the textbooks. And what the back and forth comparison shows is that the Second Amendment is described very, very differently in Texas versus in California. And you can imagine how it shakes out. African-American history described very differently in Texas textbooks versus those for California. You know, this is not the first time the Republican Party has prioritized cultivating voters using the education system. Do you see that as part of their strategy here? Can Let me just add one more, Please. because Bill Bennett, who was basically the founder of a mm -hmm. lot of this stuff, he was the Secretary of Education under Reagan and later became a mm -hmm. prominent conservative a radio beacon for the youngs out there. <laughs> like Bill Bennett really started a lot of this wave <laughs> and turned it into, to your point, Amanda, a focus of conservative uh, ire directed at education and seeing that merged with a political theory of gaining political standing and power for the Republican Party through education. But sorry to, sorry to interject there, Amanda continue with that question. No, that please. It's more context. Um, do you see that as part of the behind the scenes Heritage Foundation conversation at all? Does that seem to run through this? Well, I mean, I think right now school boards are, I, I talked to folks at Ballotpedia, a website that tracks uh, mm -hmm. everything to do with elections. They told me something I didn't realize until recently, that there are school board elections in I think 30 or 32 weeks out of 52 weeks in the year. Yep. So it's a constant testing ground if you want to test out running candidates. Of course, they're also doing recall efforts and recalls are a whole nother <laughs> thing right now, especially me being someone living in California. Oof. That said, it is the classic kind of culture war arc and there have 
often been people who will start small and you can get parents to rally around you about something specific and it invokes their children. And so they don't have to dissect someone's political views about everything, about taxes, about where they stand on the infrastructure package, where they stand on healthcare. It's just something specific. And I think to a lot of people will seem apolitical. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about giving people the best education. Let's give them the tools. Let's give them the foundation. Let's not inject opinion. And K-12 schools aren't supposed to give opinionated descriptions. But then, of course, what you choose to include is a bias. I've talked to people about this, too, because I've been covering um, Black Lives Matter activists in the Midwest. And we've talked about growing up with the Midwest nice mythos. And in one sense, it's about Iowans, Minnesotans, Nebraskans thinking we're just nice people. We're nicer than the rest of the country. Um, not actually true, but it's also a way to describe that we were not part of the Confederacy. We were not part of the Jim mm. Crow South. We were better than that. Racism just skipped over Iowa. Like we were never a slave state. Obviously that isn't true, but you kind of grow up thinking that you're better. I mean, we were taught about how Iowa actually outlawed separate but equal before the US Supreme Court did. So aren't we great? Iowa was the second or third state to legalize same-sex marriage. It was touted as like a sign of progress on these culture issues. But then you don't talk about, and I didn't learn until I was a full-grown adult, that my city was redlined. And I look at what the neighborhoods were and I was like, that makes sense because that neighborhood is much more impoverished than this neighborhood. And then the same thing with thinking that people just fled from the South, went North, and then they were free and happy and had no discrimination. There's so much that we don't talk about that's more recent, but the sense I get from parents is when you get past basically the 1960s and the civil rights movement then, everything else is viewed as unsettled. Maybe it's because people are still living who were involved in orchestrating this kind of stuff, but I think when history is viewed as unsettled, then people go, let's just not talk about it. And so that would be applicable to like climate change, which is something that is mm -hmm. highly politicized in schools and has been for a while in terms of whether they can admit that global warming is real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have observed, obviously, that Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. have all waited in here. In my view, I think Amanda shares that if the Republicans are to gain the House back in 2022, one part of the explanation and reason will be that they have metastasized critical race theory and its uh, surrounding implications into a political strategy that helped generate some base fervor and turned out some votes that helped them win some House seats. Are you seeing on the political landscape any interesting observations that you want to share of like, what's going on at a political level that we should be aware of that you're already seeing? Well, you know, definitely people are getting involved. There are a few different PACs now, some of them set up by former Trump administration officials. There's one that was also set up by a former OAN correspondent mm. to pump money into school board races around this. In New Hampshire, there's been a lot of political messaging around efforts to ban critical race theory. But an interesting thing that just came out recently was a poll in Iowa. And Iowa has gone very solidly red. Democrats haven't been able to win much there since Obama's re-election in 2012 statewide, except for pickups here and there, but nothing statewide. But I thought it was interesting that Biden is underwater in approval in Iowa, hmm. yet the recently passed bill that would ban divisive concepts in the classroom in Iowa is much more underwater. I think it was like two-thirds of Iowans opposed it. And I think there are some 
serious folks like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is a civil libertarian group that works on free speech issues in higher ed mostly. But they've had some nuanced discussion about how a lot of this legislation goes too far. I mean, it's unconstitutional, though likely be challenges. I think eventually, like, if it gets picked apart or unpacked, there could be more people saying, wait a minute, you guys need to chill out with this divisive concepts, critical race theory stuff. But I just don't see it yet on a large scale. I think there's some interesting tension here. I just saw some polling that came out among some college students, and it was asking college students, do you think public schools should teach that patterns of racism are ingrained in law and other institutions? You know, 97% of college Democrats said yes. Nearly half of college Republicans also said yes. And then when they asked, do you agree that state legislatures should be able to limit how public schools or universities teach history? overwhelming majorities of Republicans, independents, and Democrats all said no. I do think there's a danger here of Republican, in particular state legislatures, overreaching on this, particularly among younger voters that Democrats absolutely are gaining with and Republicans need to get some foothold with. Have you seen any in particular like younger activists showing up at these events? Is it mostly parents and older folks? I mean, it's not younger people showing up and saying, mm-hmm. I'm opposed to critical race theory. I mean, these are school board meetings full of parents that are <laughs> yeah. very upset. And I would note there have been parents of color. There have been Asian parents, immigrant parents, black parents showing up and saying they also oppose this teaching. I mean, that leaves aside whether or not it's being taught. And I'm also hearing a lot of frustration from school officials that are like, it's like asking us not to serve coffee to kindergartners at breakfast. And it's like, fine, we don't do that. And then they say, no, you need to prove it that you're not serving coffee. (laughs) But what we are noticing a little bit, and maybe it's subdued right now because we had such the weird pandemic year, hybrid models, remote (laughs) learning, and now it's the summer. But I think it will be students, high school students, possibly college students who will lead the way to saying enough. The real issue Mm -hmm. is how we're being treated in schools or the racism we endure in schools. We're seeing a little bit of that. It's not been widely covered yet, but there are definitely out there. And I think that's really the people who would be the ones with the credibility too, because they could say what they are not learning or whether they oppose what they're learning. I love that. Tyler Kincaid, investigative reporter at NBC News. Thank you so much for tracking critical race theory, helping us understand what's going on around it. Thank you for having me. It's a weird time we're living in. I'm glad we had the time to unpack it here. Thank you. Thanks so much to Tyler Kincaid for joining us on this week's Battleground. As a reminder, we would love to hear from you. You can leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. <laughs>